out of them. And um, that's because um, pilots are allowed, uh, they, they, they get special permits to, to uh, depart from the official routes. And actually, they're not like quite special permits anymore. They're more like normal permits every day. And uh, we wanted to make an app that shows people um, how their location is, is affected by flight noise. And um, so you, we wanted to focus on a geocoder. You can uh, type in your own address. And you can see um, what planes. You, we have detailed information about every plane you can see here or when the plane uh, went about your... Um, about your location and how that is compared to other locations in Berlin. Um, we also focused uh, on, on uh, technical stuff like we wanted to have deep links. As you can see above here, you can share every location, every state of the interactive. So you can share this uh, with other users. And we made also, we made the app uh, responsive so that it works on um, mobile devices as well. Um, and we also wanted to uh, do a statistical analysis of all the flights. We have like 600,000 flights in our application and you can see uh, which districts um, in Berlin or Brandenburg are affected by uh, flight noise and which uh, aircraft or which airline um, actually um, flies the most over uh, each head. And the, the interesting thing about that is um, normally in Tegel there's a ban on night flights. Night flights are not allowed. Um, in July 2011, you can see here there are barely any night flights. But later, like here you can see there are a lot more night flights and that's because actually there should have been opened the new airport it didn't as you all know and they had to uh, cope with a lot more planes and had to stick them in the night um, so that was one finding we had there and I wanted to show you um, a little bit um, of background information as well so we wanted to have um, all the flight data from the air traffic control in Berlin. So we just asked them if we can have it, like the radar data. Uh, but they refused to give it to us, um, even though they're a governmental organization, but uh, they didn't give it to us. There are a lot of other possibilities to get the data, like you can buy on eBay, you can buy a receiver and get the transponder data of each plane. But you just get like 70% of all the planes, so that wasn't the best solution. And uh, so we made a cooperation with the Deutsche Fluglärmdienst. Uh, they recalled all the data uh, near German airports. And as you can see here, this is one flight um, on 18th of June this year from Air Berlin. And you can see um, each coordinate at each, each time. We have a record every eight seconds. Um, you can see the altitude. Uh, you can see if it's departing or landing. You can see that it's from Tegel. And you, we have detailed uh, decibel levels uh, for flight noise as well. 
we have like 600,000 flights and it's like four, 40 million um, records in our database. Um, so, and we were able to also, besides the service for our users, um, the 3D visualization, we were able to get stories out of that data. Out of that, we made um, that. For example, so we had several um, page, uh, front page stories um, and uh, stories about uh, air traffic and things uh, we could uh, find out in the database. Um, like that, um, we, we, we found in the database that there were a lot of flights uh, with uh, altitude of 500 meters or below in the beginning and in the end. So we recognized they have to start and land somewhere in Berlin. So, and we found out there are hundreds of planes just flying from Tegel to Schönefeld, like 50 kilometers or something like that. So we're asking why is that? And that's because um, you aren't allowed to land in Tegel after, uh, after 12 p.m. So the planes have to land in Schönefeld and the next day they have to go back to Tegel to fly in the normal, uh, yeah, uh, schedule. And the other thing is there are private, a lot of private uh, uh, airlines uh, that do th those kind of flights and we asked them and they said yeah if a businessman he lands in Tegel and the other businessman he wants to go from Schönefeld he doesn't take the cab, uh, they have to move the plane. So, and it was crazy stories he found in the database about that. Um, Another thing, um, the prototype of that application uh, we created uh, at ProPublica in New York. I was a P5 fellow, it's a pair programming project um, from Scott Klein and his colleagues. And this is my working place here, was it for my working place for two weeks. And um, they helped me to, uh, to sort the data and to, to build a, a PostGIS database because I'm a reporter and I know a little bit how to code, but definitely not enough to do uh, those kind of, to, to, to cope with that amount of data. And they helped me building the prototype. Uh, I came back with the prototype to Berlin, showed it to my editor-in-chief, he said he liked the idea, and uh, we uh, built the application with Kreuzwerker, it's a developer, uh, developers here around uh, at the Ritterstraße. And the, th the, the, the main thing about our, our flypath tracker is interesting, it's updated daily with the, daily, with the new uh, data. So we have permanently, uh, we get new stories uh, and it's an ongoing observation. Um, and what we did today is, for example, we activated a new Twitter account, um, the Twitter account he tweets automatically uh, things, um, numbers uh, and statistics in our, from our API. So um, we share our uh, data in different ways and we wanted to um, write uh, more articles in the future um, about the data. And yeah, I think we found another great story maybe. Let's see, I don't know. But uh, yeah, I think uh, that's pretty much our project. and. Uh, Keep it short. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> um, we've got probably about five minutes for questions, if anybody has any yeah. questions. Yeah. I do. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, well, you, you said that you made a cooperation with the company that provides you with the information. What kind of cooperation? What does it take to obtain this, this information? Um, they give us the data, mm -hmm. and um, they have their data presented online at their webpage. Mm -hmm. But the webpage is very old and not very impressive. So, and uh, it was good for them that we show the data in a different way. So it was very interesting for them. We also linked to them in the in the details from the flights. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of non-money uh, cooperation. And you cannot redistribute that information. You, know, you you don't have like an API or something that someone else can consume that information. You just process it and, and present results. Right? Exactly. Not raw data. None of we we check the data before. Yeah. Like several times we did that. It's, the ProPublica has a data uh, bulletproofing uh, guide, for example. Mm -hmm. Like you double check it with. Um, <coughs> With um, uh, database queries or stuff like that, sure. Yeah, yeah, no, we, we don't uh, show exactly the, the data from the Deutsche Flugleitdienst. We check it before we uh, get it out. Yeah, no, but what I mean is, uh, uh, like a normal person cannot have access to that raw data. Ah, yeah, yeah, we wanted to do this, but the Deutsche Flugleitdienst at the moment doesn't want to open it up. But we are working on that. Uh, Stefan, is it here? He asked the same question, yeah. We, we want to do it, yeah. It would be very interesting to have an open API, sure. Um, what are the web stats like for this site, and <coughs> are there people using I mean, Congress case of normal citizens using it, or campaign groups using it for anything? Uh, yeah, there are a lot of um, affected people living in the in the uh, next to the airport who have websites mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. they're linking permanently to different like have you seen that night flight there, night flight there? They're using it. And the stats are like um, that's a new, a new thing for us. We have an application and. You don't have to do anything, and you have hundreds of visitors every day. So that's like, um, yeah, it's like kind of the web stats we have. Yeah. Uh, where does the Deutsche Fluglärmdienst get the data from in the first place? Like, I guess that the public institution didn't want to give you the data, but they have They have their own ways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure, they, they have uh, own radar, radar data. And they uh, it themselves on the how far back does the data go, and how long do you think you keep this online? Um, we have the data back to 1st of January 2011, and uh, it's, a, it's an open-end project, uh, but I think it's going to be very interesting if the new airport opens, because uh, we have the discussion right now about planned flight path from the new airport, and as we see here, nobody sticks to those routes. So, um, and I think it's very interesting if the new airport opens, we can really say the affection changes and how it definitely changes. Who is uh, affected more or less, definitely. I hope it will be online forever. I don't know. <laughs> how big was your effort and uh, did you get enough money from it? <laughs> Me? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I work there. Uh, I have a permanent position at Berlin Mumbai. You're an editor. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So that's uh, I get my normal uh, salary. <laughs> that's quite okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my effort was uh, from planning till also coding a little bit with the guys from ProPublica, and uh, for mainly getting the data and checking the data. Yeah. Yeah. But how, how long did it take? The project? About one year. But I think uh, we started, I, I, I went to ProPublica last November, 
And so after that, it got very intense. Like before that, it was the idea, how to get the data, what can we do, where's the story, I don't know, just to, to get the idea. But after that, like I think from like November, December till April, I worked like 24 hours in that, kind of. <laughs> Does uh, Moipost uh, plan on doing more data projects like that sure. in the future? Yeah. And do you have an idea of what sort of things are coming up? Or yeah, we have an election <laughs> uh, <laughs> in, 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 in September, a big one, so uh, we are planning projects on that, several projects. And sure, we, we want to um, focus in the, next, uh, in the next projects on uh, using dynamic APIs uh, like that, that it's updated daily. And not like one project, and uh, then maybe it's it's getting old. So we just want to have uh, stuff like that. Yeah. And do you have the skills internally to do this, or will you need yeah. support from organizations like Republica? Yeah, I, the 3D visualization was kind of crazy. Like uh, did Chef Larsen from uh, ProPublica. Uh, he's a very very good developer. Uh, but we have expertise in our newsroom as well, or developers who are able to do stuff like that. So, how far are you with opening the data or sharing with the audience? Maybe the question was before. Yeah, yeah, it was the question. And, uh, yeah, yeah, sure. We can help, right? Yeah, I know, I know, I know, definitely. Yeah, and we want, we want to open the data. We have to talk to the Deutsche Flugdienst and discuss it with them. But we'll really, we will really definitely try. Okay, one more question. Just one more follow-up. When you find that, you know, you said that a pilot would get a special pass to go somewhere else, and they're all doing this now, did, they, did anyone answer and say why? Or Because if there's certain areas where planes are not supposed to fly, and everyone's getting a pass, well, then you've got flying over areas that are supposed to be quiet. What's, what's the excuse? The excuse is um, that they have a, a large amount of uh, planes going there, and um, so many planes, it's all two minutes, there's, there's a plane going. And if a, if a faster plane starts, they have to say that a slower plane has to, 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 to take a D route or something like that, you know? Um, and they also say, like, it's, they always say, it's, on the one hand, um, it's, it's, it's loud for, 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 uh, for um, uh, not, not um, so you, uh, there are a lot of planes in, 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 in one direction, so it's loud for a small amount of people, or it's a little bit loud for a lot of, amount, uh, of people. So that's the thing. They say, like, it's, it's a good thing to deroute de them, you know? What's the data? It's great for Thank you. <laughs> okay, thank you, Judith. Thank you. Presumably you'll stick around a little bit sure, longer sure. after the after the session. Okay, so just while um, Tom is going to come and, and set up, what I'm going to propose is that if anybody else needs a drink, um, we don't all stand up because that's going to be chaos. Um, I'm going to nominate Stefan and exploit my colleagues. Um, does anybody else need a drink? Basically, the way the bar the basically the way the bar works here is there's an honesty bar. You make a kind of donation that's on the table. Um, you can do that after. You can do that afterwards. You don't have to do it all now. Um, if anybody else needs a drink, I will send Stefan to get some. <laughs> to put your hand up, and otherwise Samuel will just.
Why don't you need drinks? What's wrong with you? I So just very briefly while while he's setting up, I'm hoping any interesting any interesting operations. Two people with two meters. Hello. Um, so I'm Samir. And this is Tactical Technology Collective. Um, I work in the Privacy in Expression program, so we focus mostly on helping people preserve their right to privacy and helping them express themselves freely where they need to. So usually this is uh, talking about uh, what the context of, of usually in the places where you have a very um, few protections of law for yourself. So one of the things that... Um, oh, <laughs> so you, some of you... Um, Prost. Um, <laughs> so, so uh, you know, you have your badges, and I got a special badge here. I got lilied in the back. So if you are like me and not paying attention, you also might get lilied if you're at the entrance over there, in case you're wondering why I'm trying to distract you with... Uh, Nice colors. In any case, um, so, so part of what we do is, is train people, um, either individuals or organizations, and there's a variety of things of people who we train, um, activists, journalists, citizen journalists, um, newsrooms, organizations. Um, and, but what does that mean? So it means basically we give, we try to give them the awareness and then coupled with the awareness, give them the direct tool that they can use to help themselves now that they are more aware of what insecurities they are dealing with. But what does it mean specifically for journalists? So, what, you know, so and here's where we talk about what does, what does a journalist do? So you are crossing borders, you are going from place to place, you are interviewing people who might themselves be in sensitive situations. The interviews you are doing might be sensitive interviews. Um, so the two concepts we like to talk about is data at rest and data in motion. And basically for us this means data at rest is data that's in place and data in motion is data that you're transferring with you. And so one thing, one thing that you sh can do to be more aware of uh, security and how actually do something about it 
is to be aware of what kind of data you're carrying with you when you go from one place to another. So what's on your laptop? Uh, emails. So you made an appointment to meet a confidential source somewhere at a cafe, let's say in Amman, Jordan. Uh, if that information is accessible on the laptop and you are accessible to somebody who wants the information on the laptop, that information is now accessible to somebody who it shouldn't have been to to begin with because you're the holder of the confidence of the source. Um, other things that are data in motion, your camera, SIM card, your phones. So sometimes the answer to how, do I, how am I more safe when using the internet and when using computers is maybe to make a decision ahead of time to not have the information with you to begin with, to not have it be accessible when somebody is able to stop you, hold you in place and say, what information do you have on you? And, or even worse, show me the information you have on you. And even worse is when they just take this stuff away from you and tell you to get lost, because then you have no more control at all. So if, you ha if you're in a position to make those decisions ahead of time, that's one of the first things that we talk about is maybe just make a decision to not have your, um, not have your digital tools with you if you don't need them. Um, favorites of us, many of us, as I see in the room, cell phones. Uh, cell phones are very nice, wonderful tools, especially the nice, great smartphones. You can do your e-books on them. You can play games on your board on the train. But... Um, they also carry a whole trove of information on you and on others. So, I like to call my phone my personal spy because it tells, it tells the people who need to know what I'm doing, when I'm doing it, where I'm doing it, and it provides a nice little path of my activities throughout the day, the week, the month. Uh, we used to be able to think that this information was privileged to at least only the phone company. Uh, and we used, to, we, we used to believe that in places where you have rule of law, let's say the US or Germany, that um, not unlike Ethiopia or Jordan or Egypt, um, that, your, that access to this information is a privileged thing that is only accessible through a legal process. Uh, apparently, these legal processes don't exist so much anymore. Um, or have been um, edited to mean different things. But what it now means for you as a journalist is that even in places where you have rule of law, where you have the protection of law, that your phone can be a direct indictment of a source that you're trying to interview. Um, because it provides a link of, oh, why were you sitting with Samia Nassar, journalist for the Morgan Post, and what were you guys talking about? And maybe we can uh, just, instead of accessing you because you're protected, we can just access Samir's phone, and Samir's phone will have all the information we need. Samir sat with Julius, and Julius apparently talked with Samir for four hours. If we're really curious, we activate the remote listening parts of a cell phone that allow cell phones, um, especially after uh, 9-11, which is uh, an event that happened in the U.S., which um, aside from um, having catastrophic impact on the city of New York, had a catastrophic impact on privacy of cell phones around the world, which because one of the, in, one of the provisions that started in the U.S., went to Europe, and eventually reached China, was that all cell phones after a certain date have to be 
remotely um, remotely turned on, have to be have the capacity to be remotely turned on by the authorities, and the authorities have have taken a more malleable um, definition. Um, of what that is supposed to mean. It initially started out as, this is only for emergencies. But now that we live in a state of almost complete war against terrorism, uh, this emergency has been defined to be a 365-day thing, meaning that, meaning that as a journalist, having a cell phone um, is, a particular, is, a, is, is a particularly useful thing. However, the weight of carrying a cell phone is something that I certainly um, think about when I'm meeting certain people, and if I decide that the, the risk might be uh, sufficiently high, then my cell phone stays at home. Um, so, but let's also talk about data in motion. So this is when you're transmitting information from one place to another. And um, one of the things that... that is now a little bit sometimes harder to think about what it all takes is, let's talk about, just quickly, let's talk about email. You know, we treat email, even people who, even people who are um, aware of all the risks, treat email in, in, in some instinctive fashion as a, as a personal communication between party A and party B. Dear mom, you know, I'm having surgery. My kidney is being a pain in the ass. <laughs> And we treat, this as, we treat this as if this is a private, a private piece of information that only my mom will read. But really, who has access to this information? Well, depending on how secure the connections are, it's you have the ability to read that. The 15-year-old kid who is learning how to read hacker magazines is now sniffing Wi-Fi at the coffee shop where you are writing this and perhaps intercepting your email. And if a 15-year-old kid can do it, then other more grown-up kids can do it as well. Um, the same is um, true. Uh, your email provider can read it. The, your mom's email provider can read the email. And then your mom and the 15-year-old kid who's sitting in your mom's Wi-Fi connection can also read that. So there's a whole slew of people now who have access to information about the status of your kidney um, that, you, that what you are treating as privileged information. Um, so there is um, there there's a few things you can do about that in of itself, unless you want to start sitting down and learning some of the intricacies of using encrypted information to make sure that even when your email is sitting with your email provider or is being downloaded by your mom, uh, that the information inside your email is not decipherable by people that you don't want to give direct access to this information. Um, but I, I'd want to point out one thing. When we talk about um, security, uh, particularly for any kind of field, there is, a, there, is a, there is an inherent kind of tension between communication and security. And uh, because we want to communicate, we want to be open, and we want to send information out there and receive it in as many forms as possible. And uh, security puts barriers on our communication. So one thing that we, that when we get into talking about uh, securing our information is the importance of practice and doing things over and over so that they become uh, um, kind of 
part of our workflow, not extra things we have to do. Uh, and then becomes always the question of, is it worth it depending on the necessity of what I am doing or the, the task that I'm trying to achieve? And this is where we, the, the, one of the last parts that we, well, actually one of the first parts that we talk about is, what is your context? What, are, what, is, what is happening to you? What is happening to the people around you? So, so that we can, and let's figure out what those are so that we can figure out how to address your particular need when, uh, when you are raising those questions. Because in the end, you are the person who kn best knows the context in which you're working and best knows what the actual risks might or might not be. When we, when we have those, then we can easy, more easily figure out how to solve certain problems. And I, oh, uh, one of the things that we actively do, uh, one of my jobs, is work on a little guide called Security in a Box. It's a digital security manual currently available in 12 languages. Um, and it'll provide you with both a um, practical guide, no, no German, sorry. Um, we've only discovered that Germany might have a, a privacy and rule of law problem. So we're working on fixing it now. Um, so we have uh, three, two main sections. One is the how-to booklet, which is, uh, comes very easy to talk about. Oops. Uh, so that's probably not very visible. Great. Um, so the how to book, for example, is how to recover from information loss. It's all very small. I apologize. Ah, so how to protect your information from physical threats, or how to create and maintain um, secure passwords, and which is great, but. We also need to provide, if we're going to be talking about these issues, is provide people with hands-on guides on the software that we recommend when we work with and how to accomplish these things. So you can walk away with a guide on how to use um, KeePass, which is a password manager and password creator, which allows you to securely and, and relatively easily create strong passwords and use them on a day-to-day -day basis. KeePass is one of my favorite things to teach people how to use. And it's one of, the, I think, one of the most important um, things that people can integrate in their lives in a relatively easy fashion, just because it makes creating um, the, f the first kind of uh, uh, step is to not have one password for five accounts, or maybe hopefully ten accounts, but to have a one password for each. And KeePass can make that easier for you. Questions? I see a gentleman has been very patient in the back. Just wanted to mention that. Uh, Personally, installed uh, security in a box for Sudanese journalists in Egypt, and they were incredibly happy with the Arabic translations in Sudan. Wonderful, thank you. I'm <laughs> <laughs> um, happy, also happy to take questions in German if you prefer. Um, yes, ma'am. Um, in the in the kind of wake of prison, have you guys experienced any additional kind of awareness of this stuff being important, or is it just the same as well? So, so the question was, in the wake of PRISM, uh, the, have we, has there been more awareness of what's, 
of, uh, around digital security? And the answer is, I think so. I mean, people are asking more. We are, we are, we are getting more inquiries from organizations. We are, we are getting specific inquiries from organizations saying, in the wake of prison, what does it mean for us? Um, the part of me wants to say this, is, this changes a lot of things. But I think it depends more on where you are. On a, if, you're, if you're working in policy, it matters a lot. Uh, if you're if we're if you're on the end of where you feel like you're working in an environment where you need to more, know more about digital security, I mean, really, we're not talking about, for the most part, the the agency that you have to worry about being the Bundessicherheitsdienst or uh, the NSA. Uh, I mean, we're a lot of what we're doing is teaching defensive driving on an environment where you have about three billion uh, crazy crazy homicidal drivers on the internet. So we want you to be as safe as possible from all the other crazy people around there. For the most part, we're not talking about governments. It's a lot about people who are using the opportunity to do bad things with your private information. I also just wondered whether you could give a one-line introduction to what TrueCrypt is, because I think some people might A one-line introduction to what TrueCrypt <laughs> is. Okay, so TrueCrypt is a software that creates um, Encrypted containers allowing you to put in your, your files in them so that when, if and when somebody, you lose your, uh, say, your flash drive, uh, that your information can stay securely in there without being visible that you are storing secure or privileged information on your flash drive. But without being immediately <laughs> visible. Yes, sir. So what is it called security in the box? Because it's not really a box, right? I guess it's a box it's sort of a security box. Security in a box. So it's part of the history of the of the of the projects of tactical tech. So we had we had an and, and actually, at some point, security in a box came in a box because it provided a whole slew of resources that came in a cute little wooden box. Uh, we don't necessarily do that anymore, but we, had other pro we have other projects that were like how to set up uh, an NGO, for example. So we had a project called NGO in a Box, and the, in the history of actually of security in a box is NGO in a Box Security Edition, and, and part of it, uh, <laughs> yes, it, uh, it was catchy and rolled right off the tongue, which is why we changed it to uh, the, the shorter version of Security in a Box. Um, and, there, and really, it's um, like private companies usually can find the resources to take care of their security needs. Like you know, if it uh, it becomes a matter of of marshalling the resources, but many NGOs in the world don't, or you know, community groups don't have the resources. So a lot of what the security in a box is to addresses uh, came out of is addressing that need. But the problem is, I mean, if someone wants to sell me security in a box and actually wants to give me a box, I would not trust them because security is not a box thing, right? It's something that everybody has to care about. And that's the nice thing. I mean, that's another nice thing about what we do is I'm not asking you to trust me. I'm asking you to hopefully learn from what we're having in the conversation and test it out for yourself. And because we almost always rely on open source software for at least the hands-on guides, and we're not talking about um, this is a solution and the, nothing else. A big chunk of what we do is about the concepts. 
So while it would be nice if I could do a TrueCrypt training in one hour where I walk people through the software, that's not enough. So I spent three hours ahead of time explaining what, what encryption is, why it matters, why this is a good solution, and then do a one-hour software training. Uh, so this is that. So that for uh, that is you know the the box is not just the box. It's the whole way of thinking about security. Okay. Yeah. So this is a side question for you. Why do you think people don't use it? So. I mean, people tend to panic about you know yeah oh we're putting everything on email, but there are simple solutions or not that simple, but. You think by now, it's not a new problem, right? So it's, right. That's been around for, what, 20 years? Yeah. So the main, re the main reason I think that people are not using enough uh, encrypt actual, actual encrypted email um, is that the tools, while uh, mature and uh, in itself very good, are not user-friendly uh, um, so far. Uh, there are several projects working on changing that, and some projects make that easy, make, are, are working on making it easier. So Macintosh users, gpgtools.org is one of is where you can get your hands on on the security. Uh, if you want the same similar stuff for Windows, you look for GPG4, the number Win. So you have easy access to these tools. The, um, I think I think the the main well, but so you have the software is not that easy to use. However, the bigger issue is that I think awareness is actually the biggest problem. You have a huge number of people who are using information and sharing information and not necessarily being thoughtful about what information is being shared to whom and should it be. And even that act of thinking about it sometimes makes you change whether you send an email or not. Uh, I think, but primarily I think people are just, it's, a, it's an awareness issue. And even if we want to be aware, create more awareness around it, the tools right now are at least a little bit, like you have to be somewhat committed to having, being part of this process of encryption. So what is your personal wish? That people be able to keep their privacy in the future or not? Why? Because for me, when I hear about privacy, especially when politics people are complaining about it, it's just to hide their mistakes or what they do what they do that's wrong. So, sometimes these techniques can be used in the wrong way. Um, yes. Uh, uh, so, privacy for the average individual, for, for any of us, um, is important because it protects us from uh, from the people, from people who shouldn't have influence over our lives within a certain context. So there's a reason. There's a reason that uh, that politicians' lives are public is because they're they are and they're in the public sphere. They're doing public work, uh, and right or wrong, some of that means that your life becomes more open to others. But there are many of us who are not in the public sphere and who want to ha and have the right. And I think we have won the right over, over, over several decades of political fights within, within modern societies to say what I do in the privacy for myself and in, in private communication is for me and, and not for everybody else to know. 
Um, and I think the primary reason that has to be that way is because political systems change and what was one day all right for me to share between me and my coworker or me and my spouse, tomorrow becomes, uh, becomes a felony that uh, can do, that has, has, that becomes a, has legal consequences or, or, or outside extra legal consequences on my personal life. Um, that is, that is, and, th- and that is where, and that is why I see as privacy as being a crucial thing. And, and even politicians who live public lives have right to certain privacy. questions or if there's anything that we can be helpful with, yeah. please let me know. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, Lisa's going to come in. Well, I'm kind of like, kind of, you know, ashamed of myself. Okay. Like I guess like the worst ever introduction. <laughs> okay, but we'll stop over, we'll stop over the computers in the process. I'm not going to say anything, I just like Stefan. Just take care of it. I'm, you know, I've seen it before, so I know you're going to blow them away. <laughs> okay, so we'll start the computer Um Does anybody need a refreshment in the meantime? Well, we sw- do you want to come up and yes. start? Anybody need any refreshment? Stefan, may I have a way to explain to you? Two, two, Stefan. <laughs> <laughs> Just a I just need to, this is a short moment to set up things here. The beamer is very low resolution, right? Uh, okay, we'll manage. Uh, yeah, yeah. Just want to, want to see what we have here. What is this? Is it? Oh, okay.
So yeah, so my name is Stefan, <laughs> as, as we said before, and uh, I'm a developer for a company called. Oh, <laughs> I'm a developer at a company called Neo Technology, which is writing a special brand of da databases called Graph Databases. And uh, I met Lisa about one and a half weeks ago on a Geek Girl event, and she invited me here. So I'm also here, not really, really knowing upfront about the audience and all that. So it's it's a bit of a surprise thing. And uh, But what I'm planning to do is talk to you a bit uh, what we do, why we do it, and as we go over it, maybe try to come up with creative ideas of how that might be of, of help to, to hacks and hackers alike, right? So, um, okay, nice. Right. That's our logo, yeah, apparently. I didn't know that this slide had animations. <laughs> Surprise, right? So we're going to talk about what a graph database is, uh, how you get data out of it, once if you use one, and uh, we, you know these, these slides come with a tutorial. We're not going to do that, but I'm going to play a bit with our live things that we have to show a bit how it all could work in practice. So what is a graph, right? Uh, I guess not everybody is aware with that with that term. So a graph database is a database that stores graphs and that is networked information, right? So it's not charts, it's not diagrams, it's not pie charts, it's not bar charts and that stuff, or vector artwork. A graph is for storing data that is structured as a graph or as a network. For example, the network of your friends, like who knows who, or who met whom at what place on which party. Right. So for the techies, right, that's a bit of a reminiscent of linked lists and trees, uh, and graphs are the general purpose data structure that comes if you generalize these. Um, so what is the difference between classical relational databases that most people know or think of when they think of a database? And uh, that's, my colleague has said this, and I really like this quote, a traditional relational database may tell you the average age of everyone in a, for example, meetup, but a graph database will tell you who's most likely to buy your beer, which is a very different kind of information. So, uh, yeah, just to give a bit of an example, these animations take very long to build up. Um, so, uh, there are lots of, lots of, you know, like kind of named uh, graphs. Mathematics has studied this field for since 18-somethings, right? It goes back to Leonard Euler, famous mathematician. Um, but there are also more interesting graphs that uh, arise from yeah, that's from my colleague. Um, oh, no, that was so fast. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> but you've seen it, right? <laughs> so the more interesting graphs are the ones that arise from looking at... Sorry, that should actually work. Okay, that's how it works. <laughs> uh, from, from, from real data, like by just... Uh, putting down on a whiteboard, putting yourself in the center and writing down people you know and who, who, what are the people that they know in turn and on and on, right. 
these graphs are way more interesting. Uh, so, graph to be 101. So, uh, this tries to compare it a bit with the relational graph databases, and that's usually interesting for the techies. So, I'm just going through this very quickly. Um, to um, not leave out half of the audience, right? <laughs> But if you, if you know classical relational databases, what you usually do to store structure there is you organize everything in tables. And in order to relate things to each other, you have to have matching things in the table. Like, you know, uh, the guy who bought the book with that ISBN had that MasterCard number. Then you have a table for that, right? And if you want to kind of find, you know, interesting bits, you have to look through all these tables in order to trace down information that you actually want. And also the way relational databases works in their domain that, is, that tends to be slower as the chains that you have to follow through increase. Right. So what we do instead is that we do not store things in tables but as a data structure that really looks like the relationships that you are interested in. Right. So instead of being entries in tables the various entities that you care about, people, places, events, things, become really tangible things in the database, and how they are connected also become tangible things in the database, leading to a very more natural uh, approach to look at data, to think about data, to work with data. Right. So the key elements in what we store and call a property graph are nodes, so these are the things. Uh, simplifying it, and their connections we call relationships. And of course, you can store a lot of information on them, on top of them, like their names, their ISBNs, whatever you like, properties. <laughs> right. Yes. So, but the, so besides the obvious advantage of being very easier to think about this kind of approach to dealing with data, it also has quite tangible performance benefits. Like uh, it scales, for example, with the number of persons. Yet if you want to do certain queries, uh, for example, search for friends of friends of friends in the social network, uh, if you do that with a classical relational database, as the number of people increases, your query will get slower and slower and come to a grinding halt eventually. Well, if you do that with the graph database, things stay fine and nice and smoothly. So, but okay, that's all nice and interesting, maybe. But how do you actually use it? Um, so, how do you use it? The key concept in the graph database, they're actually just two things, right? You have to get into the graph. We do that with additional index data structures. And then once you're in the graph, the really key idea is to do a traversal. Like you start somewhere, right? You look up a person called Andreas here. And then you go on and you do that with our query language called Cypher, which is really visual, which reads a bit like ASCII art. So you're saying from this guy called Andreas, this, uh, which we now call N in that query, you go to some guy I don't care about and then to the next guy uh, and give that the identifier Fof here and that's the guy I want to return Fof and who's in the techie world a bit more knows that Fof stands for friend of a friend. Right, so I've visually written down that I want to go from Andreas to somebody, yeah you see the mouse pointer, right? To somebody and then one step further and then I'm interested in all these people. 
And that's really the key idea. We have a visual query language or a seemingly visual query language, and then you can do a lot of things on top of that. You can filter things, you know, sort, uh, connect them with each other, search for more complicated patterns. And I think since this is a short introduction, uh, I'll, we will not go through this now in detail, but uh, uh, yeah, that's actually this thing that I wanted. <laughs> Sorry. Um. <laughs> so that's the one I wanted. I hate it when they do this auto thing. Um so uh, so it is pattern matching driven, so you really write down the pattern. You could write it on a whiteboard when you design this is a query, right? If you want to think about your data, okay, I have that data in my database, I'm now looking for that thing. You write it down on a whiteboard, you can take it from the whiteboard and directly turn it into a query that you can even read afterwards, right? And it's very similar to established technologies like SQL, and you can do all these things that you do in relational databases as well, like aggregation and sorting and, you know, only give me the top five and all these things. And of course you can update the data and delete things and create new things in here. Yeah, and I think, uh, I don't actually want to go in these things right in, in detail. Uh, be this, just to show one more, uh, right, to give a bit more examples of, what, of all the things that you can do here. Uh, Right, is the match, which is the traversal that I described a few slides back, right, that you start somewhere, which you can select using some index structure. Uh, you know, people from Berlin who live in that area, or, you know, something like that. And then you say, okay, from those, I want to go to the, ah, there I clicked. <laughs> yeah, but you, I think you soft, right? You can. <laughs> There's one more coming. And you, then you can filter down, check for properties that are there, check their age, and by, by doing all that, build, build up result sets. Right. So yeah, so that's the database that we write, uh, and uh, we continue to evolve it. We actually are now on a feature team uh, doing a new release that will make it even more natural to work with sets of people and intersections of sets, or not of people, of uh, you know, data items. Uh, intersect intersections of these uh, data items so that it becomes even easier to write these kind of queries to, to work with the data. Uh, and so, and why is that important actually? I think uh, uh, trying to bring it into this context here now, right? Uh, I think a lot of uh, data is getting more and more connected and more and more diverse and tabular data becomes harder and harder to manage as the diversity increases, and in the graph database it becomes way more easy to integrate all these different kinds of data into a single model and then to gain interesting insights. And that would be the key point I would like you to take away. If I managed to do that, I think I did good. <laughs> and, and of course, uh, if you like, you can play a bit with the, uh, with the online tooling that we have. For example, if you want to give this a try and you're feeling a bit uh, like doing these things, so uh, I'm slightly suffering a bit here from Beamer size, but I think we can do it. You can just go to console. Maybe not that one, but that one. Uh, Console.neo4j.org, and there's some little sample database in there, which you actually see when you open it. It just has these few nodes and relationships, and then you can click around, click on help, 
uh, learn more about this cipher query language or uh, and just play with cipher if you want if you want to get a feel for how it all works right. and the product itself it works on uh, it works on Linux works on Windows works on the Mac and it's open source as long as you are open source if you're not we kindly ask you to buy a license at some point Actually, I mean, in every database, you have uh, usually options of how you model things. So you have to look at your use case, right? So that is really use case dependent. It really depends on. What we tend to do is uh, really like because it kind of helps the way people think about their data is to put the thing into the nodes and the connections uh, in the relationships. And then if you have attributes that really belong on the relationship, that, that kind of makes sense to put on the relationship, then you put that data directly on the relationship. Yeah. You can do that, yes. It's it's AGPL, actually. AGPL. And uh, actually it's dual license, right? It's AGPL slash conversion. Right. Yeah. Uh, what language is the Sorry? What language is kind of used to query? Uh, so this is all written in Java slash Scala internally, so there is a dedicated API to use it from Java. Um, is there, for example, a C adapter for it? C? C. Uh, have, okay, so let me just go through the thing. So we have a REST interface, so we can use it over the network quite easily. So that's what I think. I'm not sure we have C adapter actually, but we do have bindings for all the usual scripting languages like Python, Ruby, Node.js, and all, all, all over the place. PHP. Can it be embedded? Uh, yes, yes. So the Java API actually use in an embedded situation. Right. Um, I think there are, I think I saw three more. Samantha, did you have a question as well? Okay, just two, two more yeah. then. Lisa, do you need to set up anything for the next bit? <laughs> <laughs> you can ask your questions while this is going on. Yeah, so what was the typical real-world implementation where you could use the template with this instead of a relational data? Uh, there's actually plenty. Uh, so it's quite diverse. So, of course, uh, but classical is content Social media, bio, bio-related things like protein networks. These are classical, very good use cases for graph databases. Well, like financial data is typical, like cubes and stuff like that. So, um, uh, also, well, sometimes you also want to. That's not the only kind of financial data that you have. Like you have ownership graphs, or another also kind of related use case is complex access control things. That's also very use it. So really, if you have highly connected things, or if you really have a data integration problem, sometimes it also is the right approach for that. But there are the current large implementations that uses Sorry? But there are the current largest implementations of it that uses it currently. The largest implementation? Ah, the largest, the largest. Okay, thanks. So we have a client called Glassdoor, which is like the follow-up to LinkedIn in the US, which has, uh, as far as I know, like half of Facebook size. So can store some data in it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. so. One more. Oh, that was the answer to the question. Yeah. Fantastic. Then I'll hand over to Lisa yeah. to do the 
something that they can say in 15 seconds um, just to get people to get people in the room involved then go for it okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I'm organizing a meetup about data visualization and depending on the number the, actually there have been much more people than expected so we are looking for a location maybe it could be here there are 60 people uh, that asked to join, but probably the ratio of actual joiners will be less. Yeah. Find so. them in the break. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, so we're looking for a location here. Is anybody else? Are anybody hiring? Any events coming up? Anything else? One more? Yeah. I'm uh, working on a project in citizen journalism, and I'm basically looking for CTO kind of guy to help me out. A chief technical officer being hired over here. Um, any others? Lisa? Um, we are hiring developers, so if you actually like this office, you can just stay here. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm um, just like to show you like, who our team actually is in your old business, uh, Sebastian. This is uh, Pete, our front end developer. Mitch, of course, he's the co founder. Kristen. Yeah. Uh, is here. So um, if you're interested about um, our job offers, just like let us know. We're there where the view is. Lovely. Okay, any more before we do? Okay. Okay, thanks. And if you do decide to stay, the difference being that you don't have to pay for the drinks as of tomorrow. <laughs> just to save it. So um, this became a birthday present and it's not really there yet. Everybody can use it and I'm very happy to show it today. 
even though it kind of stumbled into becoming a little present, but it kind of fits what uh, Hex Hackers is about. I'm co-founder of Source Fabric, and I spent three years doing nothing but managing stuff and talking to clients. And since there have been so many wonderful people working for Source Fabric, now I suddenly have time again on weekends to hack away and do little proof of concept stuff here and there. Usually my background is not in developing, but this is something I developed as a proof of concept. Now it becomes a birthday present. I will release it on GitHub soon. It's not out there yet because I want to clean up the code because my code is horrible and I'm very embarrassed about it. <laughs> and those who are on the hacker side will agree with me in a few days' time. So um, what does this thing do? Where does it come from? Everybody knows the situation. The journalist has a very simple graph to make. Usually when it goes to print, you bring it to the designer, they make a graph, it goes to print, they don't even see it until it's out printed. If it has to go on the website, it usually is the problem like, okay, uh, you need a developer to do this kind of thing, or do we just make a Photoshop graph, and then the Photoshop doesn't scale nicely to different displays, and so on, so let's use some JavaScript library, but then the developer might not have time at hand, but even though the task is always the same, usually the task it involves is that it's one of these libraries, NVD3, HighCharts.js, InfoVis, Toolkit, Tuftegrass, whatever. These are libraries in JavaScript which basically allow you to display simple data beautifully on your website. And what all of these things have in common is that they're a library, and then they have these kind of sub-different, like a bar chart. And actually I learned something because one of the reasons I have to redo my code is because I used the word graph, as I learned now, in a very... Um, unjustified place. Um, so, but each of these things is a library, and then there's different ways of rendering simple data. Usually, that's um, I just downloaded something from this. Uh, if you basically want to try it yourself, this is the URL, and it's uh, using the Twitter Bootstrap UI. So it also works in tablet and um, other mobile devices. It looks a little bit different. Of course, the mouse over effects don't work. Sourcecamp.net itself is basically our little development server you see immediately that there's not much on it <laughs> uh, but there's a couple of hidden folders where we just do better stuff and test things so this was a proof of concept of thinking well every every library has the same thing there's a core library doing something then somebody throws a table at it and then it has to make a bar chart or a pie chart or something so I was just playing around with this for a weekend thinking well if each of these libraries would just use like a little XML config file telling it where's the library, where's the actual requirements for the, for the JavaScript data table and so on. It could actually be easy to create a little pluggable framework, I call it. It's this little in commas, and then possibly we should delete the commas because very little and brittle, um, to just basically just throw your libraries in, have a little config file, and then basically journalists can upload their um, data and create something. So before I talk too much about it, I just want to show not tell. And of course, the most simple thing to do, there's a couple of sample files, is just select the pizza and select the pie chart. And then basically I go to the next screen where I can say, this is the title which is already drawn from the original data, which I explain in a second. You can then set the width and height of the chart. You can change the table orientation. Why this is interesting, I'll also show you in a second. And then you can create the pie chart. And it comes here, and then this is basically the result where it's not, you know, it's not a lot of magic at, the, at this point right now. And this is using, um, I hate to say after security talk, it's using the um, 
Google's charts library. <laughs> However, this is so heavily in beta that it actually says that no data is being sent to any Google server as of now. But however, you've seen in the beginning, we want to basically throw all these libraries in there, and then people can decide themselves what they want to use for visualization, because it also depends on what kind of license you want to go into with some of the um, providers of these JavaScript libraries. So the idea, I don't know if, the, if this shows up, is like that it has this little nice use and feel that makes the user feel that they can engage with the data. The set is fairly straightforward. The situation is that this is a typical thing that a journalist would need to do. They have the data. They say, well, we, we got a, I need a graph about the teacher's age in, in descent, comparing East and West Germany for different age groups. So under 35, so you have 45, 45 to 55, 55 to 65. And here I have the percent. Here I have West Germany, East Germany, and this is all they would have. And then they don't know what to do with it because it's basically okay. Do they go to the designer to make a Photoshop thing, or the, to the developer to make like the interactive diagram out of it? Not a graph, a chart. Um, and the idea being that if you have this in Microsoft Office, even or like in this case in LibreOffice, you can save this information as, and then you have different formats. And one of them being the CSV file. And the CSV file is. Who knows what a CSV file is? Okay, so to those who are too embarrassed to raise their arm or really don't know, uh, it's basically the same kind of data that you see in a table, which makes sense. Uh, where is it? Cancel. Um, in comma separation. So the first line would be this piece of string, comma, under 35, comma, 35 to 45, comma, and so on. So you can see that the columns basically the groups, and these are the individual... Uh, basically grouping a uh, two-dimensional table. So if I save as a CSV file and upload it, I get this CSV file, which um, is exactly what I just opened. I clicked on download, open with LibreOffice, then you can see the file. And then, of course, I can say, well, what do I want to do with this? Do I want to do a line chart, for example? And if I do a line chart with this kind of data, it's not really telling. And what I find interesting about this thing is like you have your data and you write a story about it. What is the point that you want to bring across? What is it? Do you want to compare West Germany, East Germany like this? Kind of difficult to actually tell a story around this way of visualizing it. So as you add it, you might say that, well, possibly I use a different thing. I use a bar chart. And again, it might be a little bit clearer when you compare that under 35, there's less in East Germany than West Germany but it's still not really telling the story. And I think at the end of the day, that's where journalists and hacks, hackers basically meet. It's like, how do you take the data to tell the story? And so there's these possibilities, of course, to change this uh, by changing the chart. Um, and this might actually be more interesting to see, okay, in East Germany, most 45 to 55. But also what's interesting, again, in terms of telling a story with the same table, there's the possibility here to just basically flip the table orientation. And then suddenly you have a story. You know, I can see that uh, in Eastern there's very, very few young teachers compared to the West. You know? And then the journalists themselves, they don't, need, uh, they don't need somebody to make the graph, to go back and forth and say, look, actually, could you possibly do a different kind of graph? You upload the data yourself. And then what's nice about it, and this was the reason I started with this in the first place, is that it has an embed code which is completely autonomous. So you can, in this case, copy and paste the code straight into 
whatever CMS you're using. We will eventually develop this into, as it says here, into a NewScoop plugin. NewScoop is our CMS built on Symfony, um, so the whole thing also is written in PHP. And uh, the idea being that where this already might be worth their present to uh, journalists is it's out there, it's free to use. So once I uploaded my data, I could just basically grab this code, copy and paste, and put it into my WYSIWYG editor, put it into a text area field, and it will just call, in this case, the Google API to create a chart, but later on also will be able to use all these different um, libraries that we'll be including. And then, of course, eventually the idea being that you can install this locally, so you don't have to make a contract with a commercial provider who, of course, is interested in your traffic and who's looking at what and so on. So the idea being that this could be 100% self-contained uh, with everybody. And it'll be released as AGPL on GitHub fairly soon once I change the variable graph into chart and um, once I clean up the code and I added the licensing to it. So, and where this could be a birthday present to some developers is that it's really a hobby project and I'd be very open to just do some after work sessions of just throwing these other libraries in there and coming up with an interesting way to standardize some kind of XML config file which really makes sense of what all these libraries share so basically by saying these are my libraries, this is how I need the JavaScript data, and these are the different um, charts that I offer to use the data. So, uh, I'd be happy to yeah, show you around more, and if you're interested to take a look at the code, bear with me, give me 48 hours, possibly 50. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to suggest that we take questions for this one in the drinks yeah. session, because um, I think people need to stand up now, we've been sat down for a long time. Um, that's all folks, um, but we're not being kicked out of here yet, I don't understand, there's plenty. There's a little bit of this. <laughs> um, so I hope, you, I hope you enjoyed this, if it's your first time, I hope it was a pleasant experience. We're open, um, Lisa and Kristen and I, to suggestions for speakers. These happen on a monthly basis, um, so we always need to know who the kind of interesting, the most interesting journalists, who the most interesting nerds are, sorry, um, <laughs> that, we should be, um, that we should be inviting to, to speak. We want a good balance of people, so you can find us at any point during the evening. Um, we'll, we're tweeting on the HHBR hashtag so you can also find us that way as well but please stay, please get a drink um, and please join us next time we have a date yet but we will do it in about a month's time from now and I hope you enjoy